Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Daniel 4, 19 through 27. We are cutting into the middle of a narrative in Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that enemy who has conquered Jerusalem and has taken all of Judah captive, he's had a dream. And the dream is going to be explained in this passage and while Daniel interprets it for us. But the dream is about his kingdom and how it is so expansive. How it's so expansive that it is going to the ends of the earth and all the branches, under its branches, all the fowls of the air have their habitation. But the whole point of the parable is that it's being taken away from them, and it shows God's power over the people. God's power over all kingdoms, all nations. And within the whole scope of Daniel, and particularly the section that is written in Aramaic from Daniel 2 through 7, it's to show God's power over the kingdoms while he brings about the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, which is an everlasting dominion and goes to the end of time. And in that way, the same type of language being used here to describe Babylon makes it a weird sort of prefigurement to that kingdom that will come. Indeed, the A lot of this imagery is further used elsewhere. And so the text of scripture reads, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven in thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and an holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field." till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor." 
if it may be a wink thing of thy tranquility. In his field. Father, we do ask that you would be working in this sermon. That you would help us to think clearly. Lord, guide all of what we are doing to stay focused upon your grace, focused upon your power to accomplish that which you will, and let our hope, our expectation, our faith be encouraged and strengthened as we read these parables and hear what Jesus has to tell us today. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's say that I were not going to talk about the Bible for a minute. Let's just say in a crazy world, I start talking about geopolitics, and I make a prediction to you that within the next 10 years, there would be a nation that'll be such a tremendous superpower that it would threaten to take over the whole world. Now, you might immediately be jumping to some conclusions about what that nation would be. Got to consider the United States. Got to consider China. You got to consider even small upshots like North Korea. You might even consider that the United Kingdom or Russia would return to their former dominance. What if I really, though, throw you for a loop and say, the country in question is actually Vatican City? Now, you can hear in the very name that this is a city. It's not very big. It's not very powerful. It's only barely a country. In terms of geographical space, it's 2% the size of Fostoria. Yet, I'm saying in this hypothetical example, that they're going to threaten to take over the whole world. That sounds pretty ridiculous. But at first glance, so too does the claim of Jesus within Matthew 11 to 12, or maybe even in light of Matthew 11 to 12 claiming to be the Son of Man, claiming to be the one who would have a kingdom that would expand over the whole world, and yet he's being rejected, being mistreated, not exactly creating a consistent following that you would expect of someone who would reign in that way. The point of the parables, the growth parables today, is to say that the growth of kingdom the growth of his kingdom is not in question because of the humble origins of chapters 11 and 12. And so we begin in verses 24 to 30 with the parable of the weeds. The parable of weeds starts with a bit of a problem. In verses 24 and 25, we read this. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, 
his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So the kingdom of heaven is being compared to this. A man's going to sow good seed in his field. I mean, why would you sow anything else? But as all men have to sleep, his workers in the field, they sleep. And so then comes his enemy. Wants to disrupt the possibility of this good wheat coming. And so Sarah's tares, that is, weeds, that is even more false wheat that gives the appearance of wheat, but is the appearance of a substance without any of the proof. And so there's then all of these weeds that are taking some of the nutrients from the true wheat, but they look enough like true wheat that no one notices it right away. But instead, we read in verses 26 and following, But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. When it got to the point in which wheat starts fruiting, it was noticed that only some of the wheat was bearing fruit. The blade was sprung up, but then there were the tares. There was the false wheat growing strong at that same time. The servants come to the master. They come to the householder, and they ask the question, did you not sow good seed in your field? From where comes these weeds? And the essential urgency of their question is to say, since you definitely sowed good seed in the field, why do we find weeds? And he tells them, an enemy has done this. This was indeed not my work or your work. And there's then, hopefully, a sense of urgency in our mind that something needs to be done with these tares. This false weed is a danger. What happened to the seed that was sown upon the thorny ground? That was sown upon weeds. The weeds came up and choked it. There's a reason, like we've said before, that we remove weeds from flower gardens. The weed is in danger of having all its nutrients stolen by that which would not produce fruit. And so the servants immediately come up with a solution. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? If this is indeed the work of an enemy, let us undo that work immediately. Let us go out with haste and take away that which was planted but the master says no. Verse 29, we read, But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. And the householder and his servants are essentially between a rock and a hard place. 
The crop is in danger of being ruined if they do nothing, and the crop is in danger of being ruined if they try to resolve the problem. Has the enemy won? The householder continues with his own solution in verse 30. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The master tells his servants to do nothing. Just let them both grow until the harvest. He is confident in his true wheat getting the nutrients it needs. And at that point, when the reapers go out to do their work, he'll gather up the false wheat and burn it. And gather up the true wheat into his barn so that it can be usable. And then Jesus keeps going. To our second point, verses 31 to 32, the parable of the mustard seed. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh the tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. So again, the kingdom of heaven is going to be compared to something. And in this instance, it's compared to a grain of mustard seed. Now, if you've ever heard the comment about how if you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed. You can start to see that the idea of a mustard seed, it's proverbial for being very small. Which Jesus himself says in verse 32, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But it doesn't stay small. Verse 32 again, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. We talked the last couple of weeks again about thorns choking. We particularly talked about good plants choking out other good plants. Now squash had grown up some corn or in our garden, how the watermelon had choked out the asparagus. But if you think about the seeds, and I will admit I don't know much about the seeds of squash, so let's stick with the watermelon for now. If you think about watermelon seed, even if you are a child and are looking about the watermelon seed, you can take your hand 
and you can close your hand around the seed. Yet it grew to take over gardens. That's the image of this mustard seed, starting so small, but growing and growing, growing to the point where it'd be the greatest among herbs and become a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Daniel 4 used that image of lodging in the branches, the birds coming to lodge, to describe the greatness of Babylon at that time. It actually isn't used first to describe Babylon. It's used first to describe the coming kingdom and the coming restoration of Israel. Turn with me to Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17 is mostly about the destruction of Jerusalem and destruction of Israel. But then there's a shift at the end, as there often is. That though this tree will be taken down, a branch will be taken from it. And from that branch, from that small thing, will grow something large. The scripture says in Ezekiel 17, verse 22, Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, and have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. And so here, Jesus is taking this and saying, yes, the message of the kingdom that I am proclaiming to these people is being met with rejection. It's not growing so quickly. It does look small. But it will grow to be as expansive as you know the kingdom of the Son of Man to be. How small it is in its humble origins does not change how big it will be. As we turn back to Matthew 13, we see this point made even clearer by another growth parable. Verse 33 the parable of the leaven, the parable of the yeast. Another parable spake he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. 
leaven a little yeast, leaveneth the whole lump. And that's so much true here. The leaven is so much dwarfed by the size of the flour that's being used that Jesus can describe the woman as hiding it, where it's invisible. It cannot be seen. Yet though it's small in that way, it grows to leaven the whole up. The kingdom Jesus presents is here in seed form, but it will grow and grow and grow. And maybe that seems a bit odd. Maybe it just seems a bit new. And maybe the fact that that does seem a bit new is why this is now when Matthew interrupts and gives another explanation for parables. This time, not on the lips of Jesus, but on the lips of the narrator. So an explanation for parables in verses 34 to 35. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And Verse 34, we get the explanation in the reality that everything in this chapter that Jesus speaks to the crowds is in parables. This means that any interpretation or explanation of the parables or why he speaks in parables is reserved for the disciples alone in private. But he speaks to the crowds more openly in parables, asking them to dig to see and think about what the parables mean. And this, Matthew tells us, he does. In verse 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, as we do turn back to Psalm 78, where this is quoted from, we get a little bit of a strange thing, because it doesn't look like it's prophetic. But really, all we mean by that is that it doesn't look like it's predictive, because it's not that type of prophecy. As Jesus said in Matthew 11:13, all of the Old Testament, all of the law, prophets, and writing, all of the Tanakh, is prophetic about him, does point to him, and so too does this psalm of Asaph. It points to him as it envelops a pattern, a pattern that Jesus fulfills. So in Psalm 78, Asaph writes this, Give ear, O my people, to my law, Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. 
I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which ye have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. Verse 2 is particularly what is quoted by Matthew in chapter uh, 35. And verse 2 talks about how Asaph's going to open his mouth in the parable, how he's going to utter dark sayings of old. And as is properly said in the translation in Matthew 13, he's uttering that which is hidden. Dark is things that obscured where the light hasn't shined upon it to make it clearly visible and known. But yet, these dark things that he's saying, these hidden things, he then says in verse 3, we have known, we have heard, and our fathers have told us, and we will not hide them from their children. So, it's hidden, it's dark, it's obscured, it cannot be seen. The light hasn't shined upon it, but it's been known by their fathers. It's been told to them by their fathers, and it's going to be something that they also tell. So which is it? Hidden or known? Well, maybe if we keep reading Psalm 78 we get a sense of what he's saying and teasing out here. Verse 5. For he, that is the Lord, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should arise and declare to them, to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but to keep his commandments. So right now we're seeing God speaking to his people, giving them things to live by, and helping it be that there is a reason for the children to continue to set their hope upon him. Verse 8, and might not be, as their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his laws and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. They're to hope in God so as they don't be like their fathers who did not remain faithful. And as the psalm continues, it's essentially revealing a pattern of how God was faithful and generous, continually gracious to Israel, while Israel continued to rebel. It's the words of God's mercy to his rebellious people that all of us need. So we all stumble and fall. 
And in that way, Asaph is declaring a pattern of things already in Scripture. He's declaring what was hidden in what was already known. He's declaring what was hidden in plain sight. He's declaring mysteries by interpreting what has already been revealed in such a way as to reveal something new. And so too, Jesus. When he comes up in Matthew 13, and he talks about a kingdom that starts small and grows expansive, he's not coming up with this out of thin air. He's revealing what was hidden in plain sight. He's revealing the pattern of Hebrew scripture as a whole, that the one who is the messianic son of man to reign forever, the son of David who would reign over the whole world, is the suffering servant. Is also the same Messiah who is described as being pierced and rejected. He's just bringing the patterns together. As D.A. Carson says, what are these hidden things Jesus is now uttering? In Psalm 78, they are the righteous acts of God in redemption. Likewise, that is what Jesus is now revealing. The righteous acts of God in redemption taking place in his teaching, miracles, death, and resurrection. Matthew insists that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied these things. They are not novel. If in one sense they have not been known before, it is because they have not all been brought together in the same pattern before. Jesus' kingdom declares to the crowds new things, secrets, hidden things. Yet they are not secret and new, chiefly because they depend on an approach to Scripture. Sorry, they are secret and new, chiefly because they depend on an approach to Scripture not unlike Asaph's. Bringing together various pieces of previous revelation into a new perspective. So far, his point has been connecting the expansive kingdom of the Son of Man with the rejection of the suffering servant, such that in these two small, these two parables of things small growing, we see that the humble origins and size is not the end of the story for the kingdom. But there is something else at play and the idea of the humble origins of the message Jesus gives. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of Matthew 11, where John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist, who previously identified Jesus as the Messiah, sends messengers to him in the midst of his suffering, saying, are you the one to come, or do we look for another? As we worked through that passage, we saw the clues that Matthew gave that the reason it was there was that John was doubting because the kingdom didn't come to squash rebellion. The one who had imprisoned John unjustly was still reigning, 
was still allowed to hurt God's people, but the kingdom is to come with force. It's to come to judge the ungodly. How is it that this can truly be the kingdom if the ungodly still stand? And that question is clearly answered by Jesus when in verses 36 to 43, he interprets and explains the parables, the parable of the weeds. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. They come to him, having again given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, thus desiring to know more. They come to him and say, Explain to us what you mean by talking about this householder planting good seed, an enemy coming, and letting the true wheat and the false wheat stay until the harvest. And so Jesus does begin, and he does start explaining it, and he explains it in a way that actually branches just from strict parable to allegory. Different parts of the parable correspond to different things in reality, very much one-to-one. Verse 37, He answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. So the householder that's sowing the good seed, that is Jesus himself. That is the Son of Man. And he's sowing his seed in the field of the world. The good seed is us the children of the kingdom, the ones who accept the message of the kingdom and the weeds, sown by the devil, sown by the evil one, are his children. The time of harvest in which the true wheat and the false wheat, in which the children of the kingdom and the children of the devil no longer grow together, is the end of the age. And the reapers, the ones who carry out the sons of, son of man's justice, are the angels. And so Jesus can clearly say in verses 40 to 42 that the judgment is coming. As, therefore, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. 
and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the parable, false wheat is gathered first. It's gathered into bundles and burned. So too at the end of the age. So too the seeds of the evil one, allowed to prosper at this time, allowed to grow alongside those who have believed in Jesus, but ultimately punished. As the Son of Man sends forth his angels and gathers out of his kingdom, which in and of itself is a very interesting thing, because they're being gathered out of the field, and the field is the world. To say that they're being gathered out of his kingdom is a reminder that this is the expansive kingdom of the Son of Man, where the world is his whole kingdom. And out of his kingdom are gathered all those who offend and those which do iniquity, all those who do evil and teach others to do the same. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're cast into a furnace of fire. But unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's no fourth person in the fire with them, protecting them. But instead, just an eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. The two main significant implications of this judgment are, of course, first to flee from it. All of us, by our own merits, by our own choices, by our own nature, deserve to be cast into the furnace to fire where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's only two places where this type of judgment is given. In hell and on the cross. So if you don't want to experience in hell, then flee from the judgment by accepting Jesus. You can't take off your works of sin yourselves. You can't find ways of making yourself better and thus not deserving of it. Come to Jesus. Come to the cross. Turn from your sin. Turn from your feeble attempts at being righteous on your own and believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection on our account. The second implication is to those of us who have done that. Both to be grateful that though that is what we deserve, it's not what we get. 
that God pouring out all the condemnation for our sin upon Jesus has no more to give to us. And indeed, in verse 43, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. It's a vindication. There's a saving of those who take refuge in the Son, who come to Christ, such that our status, our future, and the kingdom of the Son of Man are not in question. Regardless of the humble origins in Matthew 11 to 12, regardless of what it looks like right now, It's not anywhere near as ridiculous as Vatican City taking over the whole world. Because God has said it. God is working it out. And God is the one who gives authority and always has given authority to whomever he pleases. And he will give it to the Son of Man. Father, we do thank you for this certainty. And we look forward to seeing this reality. Oh Lord, guide us. Direct us. Let this hope transform the way we live. And if anyone here does not have that hope in themselves, let them come to you. Let them talk to others who are here to receive it, to understand it greater. And may your name be praised by all of us today. And I pray, Lord, again, in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?